The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. make wooden shoes with and he couldn't make any wooden shoes without wood well Plato's God can't make a universe without raw stuff you have to have material as all of us do if we're going to make anything Plato also needed Plato's God needed an idea toward which he could look and after which he could pattern and then he began working so to speak actually Plato's God is not an act of God There is no God in Plato's system except an abstract idea. Well now, down the history of philosophy, modern philosophy is carried through that idea that there is no God in the absolute sense at all and that we know nothing of such a God and that man is therefore sufficient, has to be sufficient to himself. He has to make himself the focal point, the reference point in all his activities, moral, intellectual, spiritual. Well, now then, in the case of the Christ on which we now, to which we now must turn, it is our business to discover what Brunner, particularly, as well as Bart, and Bart as well, but Brunner in particular, means by, thy, by the Christ. We ask, first of all, where does he look for the Christ? Does he look with modern liberalism to experience, to history, to the records of the gospel as just historic documents in order to find the historic Jesus? Well, the answer is, of course, that he does not. He tells us, above all the teachings of the church, also above the confessional expressions of the church, stands the Holy Scriptures. It is the source of revelation for the church because the church knows of the actual happenings of revelation only and alone through the scriptures. Now that is one of many passages that might be quoted which on the surface sounds as though you are returning to the historic orthodox view that in the scriptures you must look for the Christ and in the scriptures as the source and the norm. But we are told the scriptures not the authority on which we believe in Christ, but it is the source, the means by which God witnesses to and gives us the Christ. It is not the authority on which we believe in the Christ. Therefore, it is not directly Christ's own word anywhere in the Scriptures. Not only would Brunner say that's not the case in the Old Testament, But he says that that's the case about the words of Jesus of Nazareth himself. That is, if you took the very words that Jesus spoke, the Sermon on the Mount, granted that that is historically what happened, that Jesus spoke Jesus of Nazareth, then you see that still is for Brunner, not authoritative interpretation of what Jesus himself was. The point being that in history, no historical person can give us authoritative interpretation 
Now that is the basically important point as to the difference between the historic Christian faith and this dialectical theology. Because you see, on the surface of it, it is perfectly plain, is it not? Whatever you may believe for yourself, that is your responsibility. But intellectually, certainly the two positions are diametrically opposed to one another. Historic Christianity, whether Calvinism or Lutheranism or Arminianism, it makes no difference on those things, basically. All of them, the historic Christian church has maintained that Jesus Christ did directly speak and speak with authority about himself. Let me now for the moment omit speaking of any other part of the scriptures. It has also maintained that the whole scriptures in the originals is the authoritative self-expression is breathe the spirit of God, not in the sense that it's God-like, but it, uh, that it was inbreathed by the Holy Spirit and kept holy men of God from error when they spoke of God the things that God wanted spoken about himself. They were just the instruments, the tools by which God spoke about himself, just as if I now speak about myself. You've never met me. Suppose I told you, as I did just in passing, that I was born in Holland, wore wooden shoes there. And I might tell you other things. I'll not tell you that I never fought with them. They're awfully good instruments of warfare. You take one off and you hit somebody over the head with them if you need them for that purpose. But you didn't know about that, did you, that I did that sort of thing? Of course you didn't. How could you have known it? I'm the only authority here that can tell you about that. I'm assured of that. Well, you're the only authority here that can tell me what mischief you were into when you were young, aren't you? Of course you are unless somebody else, your brother or sister, happens to be here. Now, in this sense, it seems to me it is at least perfectly plain that the two doctrines of the scripture, the dialectical view and the historic Christian view, are diametrically opposed to one another. And that that is not just a matter of little importance. It is a matter of such basic importance that it cannot be overstressed in its significance because with the denial of the directness of identification of God's word with this scripture goes also the denial of Jesus Christ as himself in history, in his personality as he appeared on Nazareth and as he walked in Palestine as being ascertainably, directly the revelation of God to us men. Now, with that background in mind, I think we can see how that from Brunner's point of view, Orthodox Christianity just cannot truly speak of God at all and therefore cannot find the Christ at all because, you see, Orthodoxy has tied itself down. It has limited itself. It has, as it were, focused its eyes on the ground when it was necessary to look straight up into the sky in order to find the star. Now, if you, somebody holds your head down like that and chains it, and you must look down and you can't look up, it's a foregone conclusion that you will not be able to see what is there above you in the sky. Well, now, orthodoxy, says Brunner, in effect, has put blinkers on. It has tied its vision to human thoughts, to human books, and all of that, and through those means, 
because they are earthbound means God in Christ can never be seen for what he is. Now, therefore, first of all, orthodoxy, according to Brunner's point of view, can never tell us about the true nature of the pre-existence of the Christ and of his divinity. Now, you would think that offhand that the reverse is true. When you think back of the debate that was carried on for many years about the person of Christ in the 19th century between orthodox theologians and liberal theologians, then it was, you recall, the orthodox theologians that stressed the idea of the divinity, the eternity, the pre-existence. Many of the Richlands modified that point of view, but the orthodox person was always interested in showing that Christ was one with God, eternal in all his being and in his attributes, the three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, being infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in their being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, as the Westminster Shorter Catechism definition has it. But, don't you see, Brunner says that orthodoxy hasn't even begun to show us anything of the true divinity of Christ. How could it, he says? How could orthodoxy do that? Because it binds itself to the Bible as a direct revelation of God, and therefore... It's not an innocent thing for orthodoxy to bind itself thus. It keeps people from seeing the Christ as he is in his glory, in his exaltation, in his wonderful divinity, as he existed with the Father from all eternity, in glory abundant. Now, why can we not see that? Well, we have these blinkers on. We look down. Now, therefore, the uniqueness the holy otherness of God and of the Christ, therefore, as God and therefore of the true divinity of Christ is invisible, is unnoticeable. And therefore, the Christ that orthodoxy does see isn't the real Christ, says Brunner. It's the Christ that could be repeated. You could have lots of them because he is one of his species. Because the nature of thinking is thoughts, concepts, is that you can have several representations of it. If I say the, speak of man, well, I can have Mr. So-and-so looking at me in this front seat here, or the friend of his next to him, or Mr. Elliot over there. They're all men, are they not? The concept man may have many illustrations, exemplifications. Well, so, says Brunner, orthodoxy can't find a Christ of which there must be and can be only one, because it has, it has no eye for the unique, for the entirely single individual. And therefore, orthodoxy is even worse, from Brunner's point of view, than his modern liberalism, much worse, thousand times worse, than his modern liberalism, because modern liberalism actually, and Brunner knows it, of course, right well, isn't thus squeamish at all, so to speak, about making the Bible direct revelational of God. It builds its theology, frankly, on experience. Much as it speaks of the scriptures, it is not for modern liberalism, the final absolute authority, that it is for orthodoxy. And Brunner knows this, of course he does. And therefore, of course, it isn't modern liberalism, but of course it is orthodoxy. 
that is Brunner's chief fault, and in the last analysis, his only fault. Now then, if orthodoxy, historic Christianity, isn't able to show us the true Christ, the divine Christ, the unique Christ, the one who can come only once, it does this, it cannot do this also because it thinks of the Christ statically. Now the Christ, the true Christ of the scriptures, says Brunner, is the one who comes to us. And that is an emphasis in the dialectical theology of both Bart and Brunner that is extremely pronounced, namely, that God is what he is in his revelation. And that is a basic, the most basic difference between historic Christianity and dialecticism. Namely, that for historic Christianity, we began to think of a real God who is over there, was over there. We, use, we have to use temporal language. We can't jump out of our skin, but we know that God is not subject to change or to time, that he is prior to time, that we are like him as a child is like his father and therefore can turn around and say, the father looks like me if he's only first said that I look as a child like the father. So the creature can say that God is per eminentium, that is preeminently other than myself because I am first of all made like unto him. Then the word otherness means something. Otherwise it means nothing. Well now, therefore, it is that God who from all eternity in his changeless characteristics of which the Son of God, the eternal Logos, is one exemplification, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, equally eternal, equally changeless. It is that doctrine which is most reprehensible from Brunner's point of view because it would cut the nerve from all of his thinking, of all of his thinking because the heart of that thinking is precisely on the basis of Kant's critique of pure reason, that God is what he does and is nothing but what he does, that there is nothing behind that action of revelation. I could quote to you literally, I have the German quotations here, from Bart Brunner's latest work, the second volume of the Dogmati, that he is now engaged in writing, in which he says the essence of God must not be thought of as existing first and then revealing itself afterwards, but it must be spoken of as being an offenbarungswesen, that is, that its very essence is to be revealed, that its very nature is revealing, that he isn't but what he is in the act of revelation. Now we speak of dialectical theology as activistic. We speak of modern philosophy and the basis of Kant's critique as being activistic, well, that's applied to theology. More true of dialectical theology than it is of modern theology previous to both Bard and Brunner. They have stressed this activism even more than has modern liberalism stressed it. And therefore, they out-liberalize liberalism on this point. They are not returning to orthodoxy. They are farther away from it, if at all possible. Now I'm interested in honesty and in sincerity of intellectual conception that you, if possible, may be able to see, if I may be able to make it plain to you, this brief time that we have together, 
that this God is a different God and this Christ is not the Christ of the Scriptures. And that if you are to preach the Gospel and you mean seriously to preach the Gospel of the Scriptures, then you must not preach the God and the Christ of dialecticism. You can't preach both. They can't simply can't be united. They are as the poles so far apart. Well, and on this point particularly, that God is nothing but what he does. He is revelation. Now, we speak of that philosophically when we say that modern thinking, since Kant doesn't believe in any metaphysics, that is, in any existence beyond this world, Hegel, the father of modern dialecticism in philosophy, spoke of the ultimatophysique, the old metaphysics, which, he says, before Kant, people believed in. They thought there was a real God up there, and that afterwards that God revealed himself. Now, he was there a long time before, just as I've been around the place quite a while in Philadelphia before I had the privilege of coming to San Francisco and really learning how to live. Now, uh, don't you see, I was there. I was just barely existing, statically. But now I've come to life because I've come to San Francisco. Now, that kind of situation, dialecticism, says it's utterly absurd. A man is what he does, and he is nothing but what he is, does. Now, when in ordinary life you have a young man and you have a young woman, and they decide to put a set of housekeeping together, and in order to do that, they are first married in this little ceremony in the church. Then they become adjectives one of another, or rather at least the husband becomes an adjective of the wife. She remains the substantive, let us say. <laughs> he, is, he is reduced from a substantive to an adjectival existence, is he not? Every husband admits, if he's honest, that that is the case. <laughs> Well, now, don't you see, God on the dialectical theology is not a substance. I mean, he has no independent existence, but he is what he is in his relationship to man. Now, I can quote you verbally words which would seem to deny that, which Bart says it would be observed to think of God as being what he is in relation to man. But he turns right around and says, of course, nonetheless, God is nothing but what he is in the act of revelation. Well, then that is, of course, to all intents and purposes, the same as saying that God is what he is to us in Christ, and then the Christ is God in relation to man, and he is nothing but. He didn't have any such pre-existence. He was not eternal, as orthodox theology says that he was. And now, in connection with that, you will understand also what, what Brunner's objection is to the historic doctrine of the virgin birth of Christ. I want to speak of that briefly. And then of the point that he makes of the possible historical non-existence of Jesus. And then of his view of the resurrection. Those three points, first of all, to indicate that, according to his view, Orthodoxy just has no real appreciation of the Christ at all. And then on the other side, how this orthodoxy does not see how Christ unifies people and brings them together, one with the other and with God. 
Now then, as to the virgin birth of Christ, it is well known, and I briefly mentioned it last evening, that Brunner doesn't hold to the traditional doctrine of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Now, the reason for that, he says, is not primarily that that is a biological miracle, which science does not permit us to believe. He says that he rejects such a doctrine as this for much more basic reasons than that. And you can understand that such is the case from his point of view. This more, these more basic reasons are all involved in this historic relativism. It would not be to heighten the divinity of Christ or to point out the uniqueness of Christ if you spoke of him as virgin born in the ordinary historic sense. In fact, he says, that would to bring, be to bring him down right into ordinary history. It would be to look for the Christ after the flesh instead of the Christ coming into the flesh. Because after all, it would be something, he says, which two people would know about and which would be open to ordinary historical investigation of which the chronicler, the non-believing historian, could have genuine knowledge. It wouldn't be an object of faith anymore. It would be something in the I-it dimension, in this dimension of the phenomenal of which Kant has told us that nobody can have any certain knowledge. It's all relative. It's all relative to the mind of man because the mind of man has made things as much as received them. Well, now that is, you see, the basic reason why Brunner rejects the historic doctrine of the virgin birth because it would tie him down to history, ordinary history, such as you and I live in. So many days ago, so many years ago this happened. So many years from now that will happen. That sort of ordinary history. Christianity doesn't happen in that realm, so it says Brunner. And therefore you mustn't say that Christ came into the world into that realm, that that is the Christ. Even if it were true that Mary had a child and that it was virgin-born, biologically true, that would not mean that that is the Christ. That babe in Bethlehem's manger is not the Christ. And Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, as he walked the streets of Nazareth, was not the Christ. He certainly, as such, is just a man as our other men, Brunner and Bart, both assert that, and many times, that we must not make the mistake that orthodoxy make of identifying the Christ, God coming to us with that Jesus who walked on the surface of this earth. Now, don't you see, that being the case, oh, I know, that he also says that Christ comes into this history, I know it well, and that Jesus, the Christ, is an object of police reports and of the commonplace journalist and of the photographer very well, that would seem to indicate that he is there, but he does specifically and repeatedly and many times over say that that is not to be identical, identified with the Christ. He is at best a pointer to the real Christ, if he were virgin-born, would be virgin-born in another realm, the realm of the personal. The transactions of God 
in relation to man do not take place on the realm of the ordinary historical that is stressed in his latest work, the very latest, just as much as in the mediator and other of his earlier works. It isn't just something that he taught some years ago and has now changed his opinion on you. I could read you the German quotations right here from his dogmati in which he specifically says that the birth of Jesus and the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus do not take place in history. They take place in history, but of a different sort, a superhistory, an urgeschichte. He doesn't now use that term, but he uses the English term superhistory or primal history or some such expression as that. The evidence on that is overwhelming so that it is impossible to escape it. Now that means then that in the second place, Jesus could, according to Brunner, as far as he concerned, the Jesus of history could at least theoretically, possibly not exist at all. A number of years ago, there were some extreme critics, as you know, Druze and others, who said there was no such person as Jesus at all. When the debate was on among liberal theologians about the historicity of Jesus, some contended that there was such a man. Others said, extremists, that there wasn't. Now, the significant point that I'm interested in, that I think we are all interested in, is that, according to this philosophy, theoretically at least, there might have been no Jesus at all. Now, that does not mean that Brunner admits that you could go that far, but it only admits that the whole thing is utterly ambiguous. He needs the Christ that is above history, and yet he needs that Christ as coming into history. Just the same ambiguity as he has with respect to the Scriptures. The Scriptures are said not to be the Word of God. Never must they be identified with Revelation, and therefore Revelation is wholly other, is never an I-it something at all, but is an I-thou dimension, in the I-thou dimension, and yet that Revelation has to come right through this Scripture, and when it does, it is stultified by means of it. It is polluted through it because it is then... The I-thou relation is then expressed after all through the I-it dimension. And then how can it help but being, as it were, brought to us by means of static? There's a famous illustration of Brunner's that he gave in one of his earlier books and has repeated since. It reminds me of that picture that we used to see in some of the ads, a dog listening to its master's voice listening before the phonograph. Now, there's a lot of screeching in that phonograph because there's a lot of static, and the instrument is a poor instrument. But in spite of that, by straining himself, he hears the master's voice. Well, in some such vague way as that, the Bible, as the human book, is full of screeches, full of contradictions, says Brunner, full of historic, historical errors, say Brunner and Bach, both of them. There is no coherence in it at all. There is no possibility of a consistent philosophy of history being presented, and it isn't presented. But why should we attempt to look at the Bible 
in the Bible for such things anyway. We're looking in that Bible for the Christ. And in spite of all of that, in spite of that static, so to speak, we must listen for the Christ through the Bible, in spite of the words of the Bible. He is back of the Bible, and he has to speak. That's the only way he can speak is through that Bible. But when he does, his voice, when it comes to us, is, after all, not at all the same. If you've tried speaking into a loudspeaker, as I think my voice now comes into it, you will find how different and how metallic your voice sounds when it comes out if the instrument is set improperly. Well, so the instrument is of necessity improper. It is unfit. It is not made for the purpose. And so it brings this revelation to you in confused form. Now, Jesus himself, the Jesus of Nazareth, the Jesus of history, which historic Orthodox Christianity thinks of as the true Christ in his human nature, that Jesus cannot speak and does not speak and is not the Christ. He is the Christ after the flesh, but he is not Christ come into the flesh. And therefore he might conceivably, at least theoretically, says Brunner, not exist. And therefore we needn't to worry what historic criticism will do to, it, to the documents with respect to the evidence for his existence. We don't believe for a moment that they will prove his non-existence, because we need that much connection with ordinary history that we can't allow for his complete non-existence. Now, I submit that that is an utter internal inconsistency on in the part of Brunner. He ought to be able to do without the existence of Jesus altogether because he said that Jesus himself, as he walked in Nazareth, could not speak to us the words of the Christ anyway. Well, now then, in connection with that, let us think for a moment of the historic confession which speaks of the Christ, the Chalcedon Creed, which, as you recall, speaks of the two natures of Christ, the divine nature and the human nature. And it says that those two natures were not intermingled when Christ came into the world. He did not empty out his divinity. He did not lose his divinity. He did not change in his divinity but he took to himself in permanent union. Asengutos atractos adiaretos aoristos. Four Greek words that I insist our students learn. I hope you uh, seminary students here have to learn at least that many Greek words. And if they learn that many and then they come up for examination, they impress the ministers greatly with their learning and they pass without any difficulty whatsoever. Now, then that doctrine of the Christ, of the, Celts, the historic doctrine, neither Barth nor Brunner believe at all. And they not only disbelieve it, but it must be completely removed as that much that stands in the way for the true incarnation of the Christ. Because if you maintain that Chalcedon doctrine, you would have that old-fashioned Preconscious notion of substance, of an eternal, changeless substance. And the Christ, in his divine nature, would still be that divine, eternal, changeless substance, which afterwards revealed itself. Don't you see? All the bad things of historic orthodoxy 
come to expression in that Chalcedon creed. Now, if and only if we remove it, sweep it away completely and cleanly, can we have a God who in Christ reveals himself in the fullness of his love, because that God of orthodoxy means that Christ partook of that divinity which had these changeless attributes. And then the one attribute of God is on a par with, one, with the other. And then God's holiness is part of his essence, mind you, as well as his love, and therefore God's wrath upon sinners is the proper work of God that proceeds from his ultimate being. And then sinners underneath that wrath must fear that wrath, lest they fall into eternal damnation. But now, if we remove that Chalcedon creed, and we think of God as being what he does, activistically, and of the Christ as expressing to us the real essence of God, which is love. All to be sure there is holiness in God, but it is not of the essence of God to be holy. It is of a secondary something for him to be holy. And therefore his wrath is not his proper work. It is his improper work, the work of his left hand, not of his right. But his proper work is that he comes to us in love, and to us means to all men. And therefore the essence of God is his revelation, and his revelation is his reconciliation, and is at the same time his act of saving men. Therefore God is to us in Christ the act of saving us, everyone. Now that, you see, makes his doctrine of the Christ to stand in complete contradiction to the historic doctrine or the doctrine of the historic Christian church. Then finally, with respect to his conception of the resurrection of the Christ, at first sight it might seem as though Brunner's conception of the resurrection, as he sets it forth to us, would indicate that he thinks of the resurrection of Christ as being a totally different fact from the other facts of the life of Jesus. He says, there was a man named Jesus of Nazareth, and he walked on Galilee, and everybody could see him. And he was the object for police reports, for the commonplace journalist, for the photographer. You could take pictures of him if you'd had a camera in those days. Anybody, the historian, still can have knowledge of them by the ordinary categories of history. And then, however, there comes the resurrection. Now, the resurrection appearances did not come to men in general. They came, he says, only to the believers. Now, they are objective, mind you, really objective, but not objective in the sense that they were in this ordinary history. But they are objective in a deeper sense. They are, the fact was historical, and it is of the essence of Christianity that it be bound to one unique historical event, the Christ event, of which the resurrection is the climax. And therefore, we might seem at first, we might have at first the impression that this resurrection is a different event, but not so. For Brunner uses the idea of the resurrection 
in order to illustrate the true nature of the other events. And he says, now, the other events, they seem to tie down revelation to ordinary history. You see the personality of Jesus walking in the streets just as truly and as simply as somebody walks here right on University Avenue in front of this church building. And we need that sort of Jesus who is so close to us. But then the real Christ isn't there on these sidewalks, wasn't there in Galilee. He did not walk on the streets of any city, not in Jerusalem. Because, don't you see, the real Christ is revealed in the resurrection. And therefore, the real facts of his life are also in the same realm where the resurrection is. And therefore, what happened with respect to this man Jesus of Nazareth, as far as his historic personality is concerned, it is at most a pointer toward the real Christ, who is not the Christ of ordinary history at all. Well, now, if we take all of these things together, what he says with respect to the virgin birth of Christ, what he says with respect to the Orthodoxy's inability to show us the divinity of Christ because it holds to an eternal, changeless Christ instead of a Christ who reveals the God coming to us. And what he says with respect to the theoretical possibility of the non-existence of Jesus and with respect to the resurrection as specifically not of this history at all, it ought to be abundantly apparent that anyone who means seriously to maintain the historic Christian faith, that he ought to be aware of the fact that this is a gospel which is not the gospel, which is an other gospel, which is not the gospel of salvation of historical men by God in the second person of the Trinity assuming human nature, dying for men upon the cross, rising again from the dead in history, on a calendar day, the real transaction taking place in history, who went up into glory, ascended into heaven, and will come again to judge the quick and the dead. That whole historic Christianity is completely wiped off the map by Brunner and by Barth alike. And the semblance, to be sure, remains. The same words are employed that historic Christianity employs. An appeal is made to Luther and to Calvin, as over against Schleiermacher and Ritchell and the modern theologians. Now, I am not accusing either Barth or Brunner of low motives in the least. But, for whatever reason, God be the judge, not I. It is simply true that we, the Christian church in this land of ours, Good, orthodox, simple, old-fashioned believers are by this theology deceived. There are many churches in which ministers of the gospel are preaching what they think is the gospel. I myself have heard it. There was many years, some years ago, a graduate of a Christian college, Wheaton College, Illinois, who went to Princeton Seminary from after his graduation, studied under Brunner, who was then there teaching there. And then I heard him preach, and he said, 
the first sentence he employed was this. Some people believe in the Christ of the... Some people divide things by the calendar. Others divide them by the Christ. In other words, according to his idea, if you divided things by the calendar, you must not divide them by the Christ. And if you have the Christ, you must not any longer consider the calendar. Well, historic Christianity has always combined those two, has it not? It said, it says that many years ago Adam was created, without pretending at all to know how many years that is ago. It nonetheless took place on this earth in ordinary history, and that this man knew God because God confronted him with the facts of revelation round about him in his constitution and by supernatural thought communication told him, do this and thou shalt live, do that and thou shalt die. That was historical. That's the source of your sin and of mine. And that's why we are born and conceived in sin. And that's why we need historical Savior, the one who made this world in his human nature, assuming it, the second person of the Trinity, dying on the cross in our stead, in our room instead, as the Scotsman likes to say it. Now that Christ risen from the dead, by the glory of God raised from the dead, ascended into heaven to prepare an eternal dwelling place for those who love his appearance. What hope, what joy, what comfort and peace you have if you have that Christ. But that Christ is volatilized. He disappears from the scene and as a substitute for it is given to men the ideal, not the real historic Christ because that's all that this Christ of superhistory is. We know nothing of such a superhistory. None of us could know anything about it. It would be absolutely meaning to us. It's a mirage in a desert. You think you're going to quench your thirst because you see the palm trees and the fountains of water parched with thirst as you are. But when you come, it's desert, desert, nothing but desert. Now, my friends, I have spoken freely, forgetting my manuscript, because I think many of you are not theologians here tonight. Some of you are. And I have to try to speak to both, which is very difficult indeed. The learned theologians will pardon me if I didn't give you enough theology. But I am interested, after all, in the simple folk who may be at second hand get this gospel which it seems to me is not a gospel, we should with tears in our eyes plead with men not to be led astray by this Christ, which is not the Christ of the scriptures.